Hello, everybody. Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Happy New Year, Tyler. Happy New Year. First show of the year for 2023. Excited to kick off another year with you and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Me too. It's going to be a great year on ASPN. No doubt. You know, Tyler, it's been, we've been at this, what, about more than four years now. That's right. We started in 2018. We did. And now instead of normally we would have a guest and uh, I always love having, we've had great guests this year, Um, but this show is not, no guests, just you and I. We're going to talk a little bit about 2022 and we're going to try to highlight some of the issues that we think are coming down the pike in 2023 in the coastal universe, you know, a little retrospective and a little prospective look at coastal issues. Yeah, yeah. You know, every once in a while, ladies and gentlemen, Peter and I like to get on the old American Shoreline podcast and just talk amongst ourselves about what is going on in the ocean and coastal universe, which is always a lot. And uh, there's really no better time. Here we are. We're starting a a brand new year. Uh, It's early January. And Peter, you and I were, were chatting about what we wanted to do this week on the show. Geez, you know, there's just so much going on. We should... Uh, kind of touch the four corners of the ocean and coastal space, talk a little bit about what we see as being developing stories. Uh, we'd like to give a quick little update on uh, what we're doing over here at Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And we are looking forward to, Peter, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your uh, some of your thoughts on these matters. I know you've got some <laughs> fastballs coming my way. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Here's what's amazing. I was just looking at the stats we received from Spotify. Uh, our podcast channel is uh, originates on Anchor, which is a Spotify company now. And so we get our end of the year report that says, Kind of here's what you did on your network. Well, a pretty damn amazing year, Tyler. I mean, we did last year, and you produced and edited every one of these damn shows, but 187 podcasts in 2022 on the American Shoreline podcast. So huge applause to all of the hosts on ASPN. We've got an incredible lineup. And huge applause for you, Tyler, for producing and editing all the shows for 2020. Amazing, amazing amount of work. Well, thank you. And I've got to say that the credit really does go to our awesome podcast hosts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, they, They run their shows and decide what it is that is worth talking about and what they wish to share with you, ASPN listeners. So, uh, the credit really goes first and foremost to our awesome American Shoreline Podcast Network hosts. It is a lot of content, Peter. That's a that's a that's a big load of content, and that's one of the things that we really set out to do uh, when we started the American Shoreline Podcast Network was to cover really cover the full spectrum of the blue economy space. We didn't want to leave, uh, you know, just focus, for example, on coastal management. We we felt, Peter, that that was too narrow that that the interconnectedness of the of the coastal space meant that we had to bring all of these different groups to a single hub. And we envisioned that the American Shoreline Podcast Network could be, if not that hub itself, be a, an important part of that hub where the conversation could happen. Absolutely. It, it, you know, it's 
tourism, coastal management, as you say, D.C. politics, federal spending, science, uh, young professionals, uh, literature, I mean, environmental justice and inclusion. I think we've got um, the Ocean Decade podcast. I mean, I, it's it's unbelievable. 187 shows, 9,207 minutes of produced podcasts. Uh, we reached people in 43 countries this past year, Tyler. We had a 50% increase, 56% increase in our followers on the podcast, almost a 40% increase in our listenership in 2022. We had a 25% increase in the places we were streamed into, and we produced about 20% more content in 2021. Big stats. Um and a testament, and I'll tell you, some spectacular, spectacular shows in 2022 on ASPN. Well, do you have any that stand out in your mind? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, this is uh, the number one show on the network in 2022. The most listens, the most shared, and the show uh, that brought 6% of our listenership to the network for the year was The Amazing Women of the Oak and Ocean Decade hosted by the amazing Taylor Gals, um, who's now at the Aspen Institute and works directly on uh, ocean shipping, carbon capture and minimization. Uh, an amazing show. And that's just one of, that one jumps out at me. Well, what were your favorite shows, Tyler? Well, it's a, always a tough question to answer. I think we, there were a couple hundred of them. Uh, but I would say uh, yeah. one that stands out in my mind recently is when we had Charles Lester and Gary Griggs on the program. Uh, this was an opportunity for me, now living out in California, to connect with a couple real legends out here. Yeah, And Peter, I know that you and I both appreciate the uh, perspectives, deep perspectives that uh, uh, Gary and Charles bring to the American Shoreline and to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. These are visionaries. They're looking forward. They have deep uh, career uh, experience on the American Shoreline, working in California, local government levels, at the state government level, at the Coastal Commission level. Uh, and we had a really good time, I would say, talking about managed retreat. And, you know, I was, I got to say, I was surprised. They put out a new report uh, along with a couple other uh, co-authors. And in the report, they outline all of the different examples of managed retreat in California. What, what might surprise you is that there's quite a few. Turns out that when the cliffs are eroding and when the yeah. ocean is moving towards you, we get out of the way. We, we really do, even though we might not understand how to get out of the way preemptively yet. We do have a track record of getting out of the way. Uh, well, we retreat. We run away when circumstances no longer give us an option. That's right. And uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, it was a great opportunity for me to learn a little bit more about my new home state. Big move out to the West Coast. And as you know, I'm, I'm headed to the West Coast in 2023. Tyler, my wife and I, the wonderful Genevieve Van Cleve and I, are headed to Olympia, Washington, uh, when we wrap up things here in Austin, hopefully in the next couple of months. Uh, so I'll be a West Coaster, and I'm really looking forward to new adventures out there. And you, you of course, are in, uh, in a wonderful Ventura County, California. Your two co-hosts are representing the kind of northern, uh, Pacific Northwest, northern part of the lower 48's shoreline there of the Pacific Ocean. And I'm down here in Ventura County, definitely Southern California and more the southern part. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Peter, I am looking forward to that move. Why don't you tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Olympia, Washington. Where is it and what's it like there? You know, Olympia, we, we had a chance to... We, visited several times over the years, but, you know, it's the capital, first of all, of Washington State. I think we all pretty, pretty much know that. It is a town of about 65,000 people. Uh, it's not the smallest state capital in America, but it is a small city. Uh, it's a port town. It's on the southern end of Puget Sound. Uh, there is a raw log export terminal, kind of right off of the downtown area where logs are shipped to Japan and Asia out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there's a, there's a salmon fishery in this area. It's a, it's a historic town. Um, I kind of, I really dig it. I think when, when we were there, uh, my wife Genevieve, who's 
from the Austin area said, you know, this is Austin in 1985, a capital town. It's got a couple small universities uh, uh, and not too big. And uh, it's going to grow. I think it's going to pop a little bit. I think um, these communities that are uh, kind of proximate to very expensive places to live, like cities outside of San Francisco or cities outside of Austin, Texas, or cities outside of uh, Seattle, uh, will have a lot of uh, population growth because people get priced out. And they moved out to they move out to the less expensive areas, and uh, Olympia is going to be one of those kind of towns, I think. So we're so we're really looking forward to it. It's spectacular, of course, on the Olympic Peninsula is right there, the Olympic National Park, the amazing Puget Sound. Um, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic. Well, I'm so happy to hear that you and Genevieve are excited for that move, and I'm also uh, glad that you you mentioned Austin, Peter Austin. The city where uh, you and I uh, met and started working together, uh, the city where we started uh, Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, it was a great place, I think, and I'll just speak personally, it was a great place for me to professionally and, and, and personally spend some time. And I am just grateful, Peter, that we had that opportunity uh, to host all those shows together. Yeah. Uh, and I look forward to uh, doing some more face-to-face recordings with you this year in 2023, hopefully at some live events. Um, but, but you know, change change happens and change is good. Uh, I'm out here in Ventura, California. And Peter, you know, I have, I have used this show and others uh, on this network to talk about Ventura before. So I'm not going to... Yeah, right. I'm not going to do a big thing, but uh, it, it does feel great to be out here uh, on the coast, and it's a change that I'm I'm leaning into, and I feel full of energy. Uh, yesterday, I was out at the out at Surfers Point Ventura with Brian Brennan, uh, another friend of the podcast, and and kind of California coastal legend. And uh, we were watching 18 footers roll in Ooh. there uh, from that big storm that just blew through the atmospheric river. So these are the kind of experiences that I get to have much more regularly uh, here that I didn't get to have so much in Austin, and uh, it's invigorating. What can I say? It 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 reminds me why what we're doing here on this on this podcast and on Coastal News Today more broadly is important. Right. Uh, th- these are complex geographic zones, Peter, and uh, it's a lot of fun talking to people and understanding them better. Well, I got I got to bet that the cliff face erosion issues in California just got worse in the last 3 or 4 days with this atmospheric river and these exceptionally high tides and wave energy. Uh, and those are the kind of conditions uh on the dynamic coast that we talk about all the time, the conflict over public uh access to the shoreline uh, and upland development and the interface of the public and private rights. I mean, it's just all driven by the power of the sea and the power of the ocean all around the American shoreline. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and it's good to go. It's good to be able to stand there and see it. Uh, what did you think? Is that as big as the surf you've seen? Eighteen feet. That sounds pretty hefty. I believe it is the largest surf that I have seen standing on the beach. I mean, it it was nuts, and I mean, it was this was a stormy. Uh, conditions. So the waves were not rolling in, you know, nice and neat, like wasn't clean. It was, the the, the yeah. water was chocolatey. The waves were large and choppy. The wind was blowing. Uh, but it was very cool to see. And you are uh, totally correct that the, uh, the, the erosion on the coast, uh, throughout California, but I would specifically talk about Santa Cruz up North, uh, yeah. Uh, is going to be a, a major news story that we will be tracking on Coastal News Today and on this podcast in 2023. Speaking of, Peter, uh, we're just yeah. kicking off 2023, and I we wanted to go through some of the news stories, some of the, some of the trending storylines that we think we're going to be seeing this year. And, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Peter curates Coastal News Today every day. <laughs> he reads that news, and he brings it to you in the Daily Blast newsletter. So if you're not subscribed to that Daily Blast newsletter, that's going to be something you're going to want to do. It's totally free. You're missing out. You're missing out. It's a great thing. And it'll keep you, as we said, Todd, when we started this thing up, we wanted to create this idea of a Renaissance coastal citizen, people who knew a little bit about it all, because 
you know, it doesn't matter what segment of the coastal economy you operate in, either as a professional or in business uh, or as a, just a resident, uh, what's happening around you, the channel maintenance projects, what's going on in ports and waterways, what's going on in real estate development um, and in the tourism industry and in the fishing industry. These are all aspects of the complex economy of the coastal area and coastal news today is an attempt to take take a look at those that broad spectrum of uh, of of interests uh and so that people who live and work on the coast can be a little bit more you know situationally aware that's what i would say definitely and one of the elements that i think folks on the coast need to be situationally aware of and i would say are becoming situationally aware of is the rapid development of offshore wind energy on the American shoreline. Peter, what do you think is going to happen with offshore wind development in 2023? Well, as we all know, if you're a coastal, (laughs) if you're a coastal news today, reader, you do know this. Uh, Of course, that the, that the Biden administration is making a major, major push forward through the Bureau of offshore energy management. Boom. Um, to, uh, to promote and develop wind power on the American shoreline. Um, we've had uh, wind power lease sales uh, conducted in the northeast part of the U.S. They are now being prepared. I believe they've already occurred in North Carolina. Uh, the California coast, Tyler, had two uh, uh, wind power lease sales uh, prepared and ready to go, one in the Morrow Bay area and one up in Humboldt in the northern part of the California coast. And the Gulf of Mexico states, uh, wind power offering is coming up. So they're opening it up and we're starting to see substantial interest in these wind power leases off the American shoreline and billions of dollars uh, being bid uh, on these projects. So uh, I think, Tyler, um, this is a this is a you picked a really good trend. This is a big trend on the American shoreline that's really going to have an impact on the economy and the communities on the coast. What do you think about it? Well, I, I of course totally agree that the the trend of the development is for sure going to happen. But you know, Peter, you know me. I like to keep my eyes on the social side, the debate, the politics. And what I anticipate happening this year is a the development of organized opposition to a lot of this op, offshore wind uh, p- these proposals which are moving forward I don't I'm not predicting that the opposition is going to stymie or stop offshore wind but I have to say that there has been a, a striking absence in dissenting discussion for some time I mean offshore wind of course is uh, historically a contentious issue but this most recent push to develop beginning on the, the, the New England uh, areas and then down into the Mid-Atlantic and now on the West Coast, the Biden administration making the big push, uh, there hasn't been much, certainly not with the environmental community, which you would think would be one of the primary uh, oppositions to offshore wind. Um, but I do anticipate this debate becoming more vigorous and more intensive. Um, I think that as these projects do go into, we'll call it groundbreaking mode. I don't know if that's the proper term when you're doing yeah, an option. Water breaking mode. Yeah, I water breaking. But <laughs> I guess you don't bring a shovel out. But uh, whatever it is that you bring out and and uh, celebrate the, uh, the, the commencing of the construction of these, I think we're going to start to see uh, real impacts. Of course we are. We're going to start to see them. We're going to start to measure them. We're going to start to understand them. And with that will come uh, criticism. And I think 2023 will be a year where we're going to start getting a little bit more granular with our understanding of offshore wind. Yeah. Uh, and Peter, if I, if I might transition or at least parlay this discussion into what's also going on with aquaculture on the American shoreline. I know we got a lot to talk about, but I want to spend a little bit more time on wind. I think your observation is a good one, uh, that we'll start to see uh, a more dynamic uh, discussion around offshore wind in America, uh, including the, I said the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, I apologize, correct record, it's of course, it's the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, that is the federal leasing agency for all these areas, but 
Uh, yeah, the, I think the issues are really uh, centered on uh, on other economic interests like the fisheries impacts that are anticipated both in shellfish harvesting and in uh, finfish uh, uh, fisheries and uh, impacts the potential impacts to shorebirds. There's a lot of discussion about the gray whale migration on the West Coast and how the wind power, uh, how are these floating uh, offshore wind towers are going to potentially affect that. So I, I do think we're going to start to see a more vigorous debate. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a flat-out proponent uh, for offshore wind power. I think we've got to do it, and I think it's all about resolving you know, the interests that conflict on the American shoreline, just like every other industry that operates on the American shoreline industry or business interest or community interest. I mean, we all expect this space of the land water interface to do lots of stuff for us. And uh, we need it to produce more energy and we need it to produce clean energy now. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see the skill of the BOEM staff um, and the Biden administration to handle uh, what I think you're rightly predicting is going to be a more dynamic and uh, involved discussion of wind on, in, on the American shoreline. And, you know, I, I, the reason why I bring the aquaculture up is because it really is just not wind. It is an overall uh, looking to the ocean for climate and energy and shipping, all of the different uh, uh, problems that we look to the ocean to help us solve. And uh, our future food supply is certainly one of them. Uh, the Biden administration has been... Uh, consistent in wanting to increase uh, offshore aquaculture. Uh, this is something that the Trump administration was actually uh, keen on. They uh, Trump signed the Aqua Act, which was in a, a was that a piece of legislation, Peter, or yeah, was that yeah, an executive was, order? No, I believe that was actually- I think you might have done both. Uh, um, I, the Aqua Act is, is actually uh, yeah, passed by Congress, yes, but I think he probably did some sort of executive order to promote it as well. So, so here we have some bipartisan uh, agreement, at least in, in some uh, respect, that aquaculture does have a role to play uh, on the American shoreline in the future. But implementing it, bringing uh, aquaculture to scale, bringing an actually industrialized aquaculture system to the American shoreline is a ways off. But 2023, Peter, will have some major developments. And the one that I'm tracking is the... Uh, advancement of the aquaculture opportunity area off the coast of Southern California and off the coast of the Texas Gulf. The AOA, that's what that what it is, right? The aquaculture opportunity area. That's uh... that's right. It's called the AOA for short, the aquaculture opportunity area. And uh, this the the site off of Southern California is where I would one day like to have a kelp and mussel farm of my own. So I've been following very close attention to the process. And the timeline, just so y'all know out there, is that between Q1 and Q2, right at the round end of Q1, beginning Q2, uh, NOAA estimates, they will be done, they will be completing their programmatic EIS and will make a finding. A, either a recommendation to move forward or not. And as you can imagine, uh, aquaculture is a dynamic spectrum of activities. It's not necessarily just kelp and mussels, like what I'm interested in doing. It can include salmon, uh, growing salmon and other fish, uh, which is called fin fish aquaculture. And what will be really interesting to see with this AOA uh, development is, will NOAA allow fin fish aquaculture inside the AOA or will it restrict the AOA to, let's just say, more regenerative and less impactful aquaculture activities? Mussels, clams, scallops, shellfish, basically. And kelp. And kelp. Okay. And the reason why this will be an interesting uh, potentially decision is because the environmental groups uh, have been, for the most part, watching and encouraging the feds to... Uh, not allow finfish aquaculture uh, okay. in the Southern California AOA. Mm. And yet the uh, NOAA feds are definitely still interested in finfish, uh, finfish aquaculture in some capacity. And these AOAs are 
a bit like a pilot project, Peter. You know, these are very, you know, small designated areas where the idea would be we would start as a country, as a nation, start some uh, offshore federal waters aquaculture activities. Yep, open water commercial operations. Are they? Are they? T- are they? Uh, did Did the AOA guidelines at this point anticipate commercial scale uh, activities, or is this sort of pilot testing stuff? Or can can you get out there and and actually uh, develop an offshore aquaculture business? Well, I think that remains to be seen, and that will be the challenge that I'll I'll look forward to reporting back on as this year develops. Uh, I would hope that as the AOA uh, comes online, that it is an, a, a place that is available for participation outside of, you know, just huge, big business operations that are throwing millions and millions and millions of dollars at their lease or at their operation. I would like to see uh, a decentralized kind of small business environment of aquaculture develop on the American shoreline. Uh, I think that would be a better outcome for the working waterfront. I think it would be a better outcome for the environment generally. And I think it would be a better outcome for aquaculture because it would allow more competition and a more quickly evolving and improving aquaculture, uh, op, you know, collectively an, an aquaculture industry that is uh, learning from itself because we'd be competing with each other and taking the best ideas forward. So, uh, I, that's kind of the future that I would like to see, but I don't think we know Love yet. It. And uh, and certainly, yeah, if you yeah. look at the history of <laughs> American industry, it doesn't always run that way. And so, uh, this is something I'm going to keep in my eye on and be informing everybody of as the year progresses. Yeah, but I do think it'll be an exciting story for 2023. It's, I mean, you know, our good friend Robert Jones he used to have the Seafoodie podcast, which was, you know, he's a chef and incredible guy and works on, um, works in Europe now on cellular based uh, meat production. But was a big proponent of aquaculture, as are a lot of conservationists. Uh, we put a lot of pressure on the natural stocks and uh, uh, the ability to produce protein uh, without reliance on natural stocks it can help. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the fin fish uh, element is handled this year. If you're a reader of Coastal News Today and you click on the aquaculture tab, there's a collection of all the stories in aquaculture that have not been deleted off the site. It usually goes back at least two or three months uh, at a time. But the state of Washington, the state of Oregon and California and Alaska have all banned uh fish farming net pens in state waters uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, Washington joining that effort uh, just in the last few months. And uh, of course, the state waters typically are three miles out, and then it's federal waters beyond that, unless you're in Texas, where we go out three marine leagues or almost 10 miles of state water. But um, these these net pens are are different and I think are subject to a higher level of scrutiny. And, uh, you know, you've picked the two things I think are great, you know, a mussel and kelp aquaculture farm, Tyler, sounds awesome. And I really hope that you and your partners get a chance to put that in the water sometime in the next couple of years. Well, it will certainly be an interesting adventure putting it together. And I'm hopeful, but uh, we'll have to see how the AOA programmatic EIS turns out and what the recommendations are. And ladies and gentlemen, you can bet your bottom dollar that as soon as those report, those uh, recommendations come down, we will do a show right here on the American Shoreline podcast. Maybe we'll even get some of those NOAA policymakers on board and we can talk to them all about it. We, we, we should. We should. We should get the program, folks. If it moves forward, we should get the program, folks, uh, on the show uh, this I want to talk about, since we're in some, we're in a fisheries thing right now, uh, I want to talk about the Maine lobster fishery uh, and what happened in 2022 and where we're going forward from here. Um, In 2022, the Maine delegation uh, in Congress, both Democrats and Republicans and independents, because they do have an independent up there, and the governor uh, both sides of the aisle and the newspapers. I mean, just across the board, there was this amazing push by the power infrastructure stakeholders in Maine to push back 
against the NOAA uh, regulations that were coming out uh, seeking to reduce the number of vertical lines in the water. These are the, the, the vertical lines up to the buoy from the lobster trap. There's millions of these lines in the, in the water off of Maine during the lobster season. Uh, occasionally, quite frequently, in the view of NOAA, uh, North Atlantic right whales get entangled in this gear, which they can drag around for months, if not years, eventually leading to their decline, starvation, or reproductive failure. We've done a couple podcasts on that topic. Uh, but what happened in 2022 was the state amended the law. They changed the law in 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 the actually, Tyler, in the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending package passed by Congress just uh, in the last month, uh, included a provision that halted the application of NOAA's new gear regulations and whale protection rules for six years. And I have to tell you, I watched all year the alignment of this political power, and I'm completely against it. I think they're wrong. I think the story that they're telling to uh, advocate for uh, or to or to fight any of the federal regulations to protect the North Atlantic right whale is false. Uh, they're not telling the truth. Uh, this is a group of people who have now taken the position that the North that the that the main lobster fishery has nothing to do with the decline in right whales or right whale uh, risk of mortality and morbidity. They say the gear's not marked. There's no actual evidence. It's because they don't mark the damn gear in Maine, so it's not traceable. Um, but I think they've made a big mistake. There's 340 of these cr creatures left. Um, I'm, I'm disappointed in, in the state of Maine, and I'm disappointed in the Maine Lobster Fishery, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, and the groups that put, put this together and, and just powered past the regulations. I, I think it's a bad, bad deal. Well, I, 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 of course, agree. I think it's sad, but it also, to me, is... Uh, exactly the way you would expect politicians to behave uh, in Maine. You know, the the lobster, you know, when, when people think of Maine, they oftentimes think of a lobster. Yeah. I mean, the lobster is an important figure in Maine. So that's, you know, take that for, for what you will. The, the lobster is an important character up there uh, politically. <laughs> it, it, and so the, politically, and it's the it's the most lucrative fishery in the United States. It is the most lucrative fishery in the United States. But this is exactly the way you would almost anticipate uh, Maine, which is a relatively small state, uh, behaving with relatively small thinking. Uh, and this is why we have a federal government and we have bigger uh, legislative and legal responsibilities because the state of Maine does not own or control uh, the future of the right whale. That is something that the American people and international treaties uh, have a say in. And uh, while politically this might make sense to back their their beloved lobstermen and women, uh, this is a very poor and short-sighted political move in the long run. It's going to hurt Maine. It's going to hurt the lobster fishery. And it's potentially going to hurt the last remaining North Atlantic right whales that uh, we're, we're all trying to save, or at least we all should be trying to save. So, uh, Peter, I am in completely in complete agreement with you. I, I don't uh, I, I understand why the local politicians did it. It's very clear that they were throwing uh, constituents, popular constituents, important constituents. And let's be real, wealthy constituents on the main shoreline, a bone. And uh, it's going to be up to the rest of us coastal citizens around the American shoreline to make sure that this does not fly. You know, there's there was a, a boycott called uh, 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 a couple of the agencies that certify sustainable fisheries have spoken out and said that they think the fishery is not sustainable now, given the interaction with the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, the good thing is, I mean, what they did was they kicked these federal rules down the road to 2028 and basically said NIMFS, the National Marine Fisheries Service, doesn't have the authorization to impose uh, new restrictions for the North Atlantic right whale on this fishery. 
uh, for six years. And they also dumped $55 million into the pot, which I am 100% in favor of uh, for the science and monitoring and technology of the right whales. uh, And also to develop this ropeless fishing gear so you get rid of the vertical lines. Um, It's going to cost money, but these cats are making enough money. That's the other thing that bothers me about this decision. I have never heard a group of people and the main lobster fishermen are a very well-to-do group. And look, I know they're all family people and the story is that they're barely making it and all of that stuff, but they're the harvest levels in the last 10 years have exploded and they're record numbers almost every year of more than a hundred million tons of lobster is caught. It is worth a lot of money. And obviously the fishermen don't get all of that, but these, this is a successful group and a successful fish right now. And, and if you read uh, the rhetoric they toss out, you'd act like that. They'd act like they're all on their last leg and it's not true. And when uh, you know, they were at the table for many years working with nymphs. They, the rule making was moving forward and then it was politicized. And, uh, uh, and, they, and they have finally taken a step back from the table all the way. They, are, they, they quit working with, uh, with, with federal government, the National Marine Fisheries Service some time ago. But now it's just there's no uh, constructive discussion. And the problem remains. You know, the right whales are in danger, and these vertical lines have something to do with that. And uh, we're just not going to deal with that for six years. And, and that's, what, that's what bothers me about it. Well, it's, I think it's poor, public, uh, it's poor public policy. I think that our listeners in particular will uh, understand that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the issues of climate change and migrating fisheries are anxiety-inducing. And one of the things, one of the lessons that I take from this is that uh, we will struggle, certainly at, at, at local levels perhaps, struggle to make the right decisions uh, because the political dynamics aren't set up for the right dis- for the right answer, and Peter, uh, 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 we will be speaking with next week uh, a mayor of a New Jersey town who is trying to armor his town's beach. He's trying to 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 armor the beach, and we know that armoring is is only is going to make the erosion worse, and that the the town is going to suffer increased erosion wherever that wall ends on both sides. So you're going to create two new hotspots of erosion by doing this. But he, in his political perspective, and I do look forward to speaking with him and asking uh, him to walk us through his decision making process. Mayor Patrick Rosanello. Uh, in New Jersey um, is the mayor of the town uh, that is in in a battle with the state of, uh, this is the town of North Wildwood, New Jersey. They're in a battle um, with the state of New Jersey over where they can, whether they can pound uh, steel sheet pile bulkheads, you know, kind of behind the dunes a little bit to, uh, you know, protect the upland properties. That's the dispute. The state has sued the city and the mayor, because uh, <laughs> he's a tough New Jersey mayor, countersued the DEP, the, the state of New Jersey Department of Environmental Tech Protection, for $20 million and said that the uh, state has failed to protect the property and maintain the shoreline as is their responsibility. So we, you're right. This is a, a really interesting case. What would happen in New Jersey, if it were to be similar to what's going on in Maine, would be that the governor would say, great, we're going to suspend all of our coastal protection and environmental coastal laws, and you can do whatever you wish. Uh, this is clearly a an emergency situation, and uh, the state will will allow you to do that. And then, of course, I think the federal government might have something to say about it. But uh, in any event, Governments are, uh, particularly when the jurisdiction, the actual, you know, a local government can, we, we run into this on the coast all the time. You know, these, these environmental systems go beyond the boundaries uh, of these jurisdictions. The whales swim all the way down to Florida for calving and all the way up to Canada in the, in the wintertime or in the summertime. It's yeah. the summertime, isn't it, that yeah. they swim up there? Yeah. Well, they swim up there in the summertime, ladies and gentlemen, and and that and this is when they get into trouble with all those uh, lobster pots. And uh, th- these, in other words, these, t- in order to effectively manage species like this, you've got to be thinking 
uh, bigger. You got to think regional. You've got to think oceanic. And uh, what's going on in Maine is definitely counterproductive to that. Well, I like what you pointed out, and that is that uh, if you if you take a look at the New Jersey case that we were talking about, the battle between the state of New Jersey and the town of Wildwood, and yeah, looking forward to talking to the mayor. Um, it's a climate issue, and if you look at the main uh, story, it's a climate issue. In fact, in arguing that the uh, uh, main uh, the restrictions from the National Marine Fishery Service should be you know postponed uh, the people the proponents of that position argued that climate change is changing the migratory plant uh, uh, patterns of North Atlantic right whales and that nymphs had failed to fully account for the new conditions and uh, so it was driven in part the request for the delay oddly was driven in part um, by a climate change argument, a change in migratory patterns. And we are seeing, as you pointed out, fisheries are starting to move around. Commercial fisheries and important ones, uh, shrimping now off of Virginia hasn't been in there for uh, a very long time, but uh, commercially available shrimp species are getting that far north. And um, we're starting to see these migrations. And you're right, the political system hasn't quite caught up with the changing conditions on the shoreline. And the New Jersey case is, look, increasing sea levels are going to put towns under a lot of pressure uh, because they're going to have to, uh, they're going to have to uh, respond to their property owners, citizens, slash voters who are going to demand that their properties be protected from increased sea levels and increased erosion and increased storm risk. And this mayor is settling on the side of structures uh, proposing uh, you know, bulk, bulkhead on the beach, which we all know, and every coastal engineer out there and every coastal geologist and basically coastal management professional understands that when you armor the shoreline, you wreck the beach. Um, and so that's going to, but that's a climate story because it's a, it's really a sea level rise desperation story, I think. Definitely. And, and I will just say, you know, uh, the, one of the, Things that we do, taking a real pelagic view of the ocean and coast here, <laughs> is that we we look at uh, the broader ocean as uh, connected to the coast. And uh, Peter, I just I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, quickly say that one of the things that I'm going to be having my eyes on in 2023 certainly was also a uh, storyline in 2022 is the international efforts to protect marine uh, ecosystems. Uh, efforts to codify 30 by 30 efforts yeah. to combat climate change uh, on a uh, international level. These are all major coastal and ocean stories. And I would also uh, pair that with, you mentioned Taylor Gels, uh, who's one of our fantastic hosts, uh, host of the Ocean Decade show here on ASPN. But in her, for her day job, she works in marine decarbonization. And this is another thing, Peter, that I think has been uh, been making a lot of news, uh, certainly toward the end of 2022, and I anticipate as well being a, a, a driving story in 2023, will be uh, the shift in marine uh, fuels to be less carbon intensive. Uh, I'm seeing more LNG, more methane yeah. uh, ammonia. Uh, methods, ammonia, ammonia totally. Yeah. And so we've got these new technologies coming online that are changing uh, marine shipping. One of the largest uh, contributors to uh, our global CO2 emissions in, in the world, uh, marine shipping, are are changing. And I think it's a real positive story looking ahead to 2023. Agree. Uh, Taylor, yeah, she's tremendous. I mean, it, it's one of the great things about this network is the quality of the hosts that we uh, are privileged to work with. You know, uh, Tyler, as you recall, when we were at the ASBPA conference in New Orleans, uh, we were broadcasting from the conference as we uh, typically uh, did back in the pre-pandemic days. And uh, uh, this was post-pandemic, but it was the first face-to-face uh, -face conference uh, in a while. Uh, but we met the VESTA team there, the Project VESTA team, um, they had a they had a booth at the conference and a, a presentation was made uh, that you and I attended uh, where they were talking about the potential of coastal carbon capture uh, 
uh, using olivine sand, enhanced uh, ocean uh, acidification. I mean, uh, alkalinity. It's a, a carbon capture. God, that's you got to edit this out. I can't tell you fuck that. All right, that part about ocean alkalinity and acidity enhancement. My God. Um, no, but it's 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 a it's a a very innovative way to respond to uh, climate change. Uh, we move a lot of sand around on the American shoreline and around shorelines around the world. We're constantly adding material here and there. We're restoring beaches and wetlands and and moving sediments. And if that if there was a small percentage of the sand that was being utilized in restoration and marches and beaches that was what was olivine that olivine uh dissolves in acidified seawater and in the process uh breaks down carbon dioxide and it is a permanent uh reducer of atmospheric co2 uh that occurs through the dissolution of the co2 in the water and then the ocean acidification issues that arise and then the interaction with olivine i mean I, I'm really looking forward to the, the working uh, through 2023 with uh, with Vesta. We've got some great projects coming up. Uh, we're still a very science-forward company, very deep into the research uh, and investigation of this technology. We're doing uh, scale, small-scale demonstration projects and use of olivine in marshes and on shorelines. And uh, learning everything we can about the efficiency of this process and I just think it's got it. It is one part of the many solutions that are going to be required to effectively respond to climate change. Uh, as I like to say, it took a million decision, million million decisions to put us in the position we are uh, as a planet and as a human population uh, with climate change, and it's going to take millions of decisions to get out of it, and thousands of approaches. And I think the the approach that Vesta is developing is absolutely one of the core uh, methodologies that should be continued and advanced and developed. I think it's going to work, and I'm really looking forward to for 2023 with Vesta. Well, I'm looking forward to staying abreast of everything that you're doing over there. It's a very innovative uh, company, ladies and gentlemen. Go check out their website. Peter, what is the Vesta website? Yeah, I think if people want to learn more about Vesta, and I encourage them to do it, uh, it's uh, our web address is Vesta.Earth, a great website name. And Peter, if I may say so, you know, Vesta is is not alone in the blue carbon space. It's a very exciting universe of companies and research and government stuff, all happening uh, to figure out how we can mitigate uh, climate change, mitigate our carbon problem uh, using ocean systems. And this is a wide range of stuff, everything from kind of honestly kind of far out there kind of stuff that I'm, I can't get into all the way to stuff that I can get into, like what you're doing over there at Vesta and what I'm hoping to do uh, with kelp, uh, uh, with uh, the Channel Island Kelp and Muscle Company. So I think that's really exciting. And I will say that uh, there, there's another word that came into my lexicon, really came into my lexicon in 2022, Peter. And I think we're going to be using it a lot more in 2023. So brush off your brush off your dictionary. But it's it's the term biodiversity, biodiversity. You know, I, I, I we all know what biodiversity means. We've discussed it, I think, kind of from kind of a basic level. But but in international kind of global discussion of climate change and the state of the global environment, the planet, the discussion of biodiversity is on the rise. It, it's an ascendant topic. And I think that one of the things that we will be increasingly uh, discussing on the American shoreline is, is biodiversity and how, our, how marine ecosystems are uh, being impacted by climate change and how we will pay attention to the actual living things that are around us, even the even the ones we can't see, Peter, uh, the the microbiome, the uh, the funguses that are around us, uh, the small little bugs and and little fish that you you'd never see that are that are play important roles, really important roles in the lives we lead. We you wouldn't think it, but they do. 
And uh, I think that as our ocean science uh, expands and we discover more of the ocean and coastal space, how it works, what's actually there, we will learn more and more about that. And I anticipate 2023 being a big year in that subject area. Yeah, I think so. I, it, you know, if you you may you may have read, may have heard, it's been talked about a little bit this past year that we are in uh, a period where the extinction rate on the planet is uh, extraordinarily high compared to other periods on the planet. Um, that there's been a significant contraction in biodiversity around the planet. Um, and yeah, uh, biodiversity is functionally a discussion of ecosystem health, which means making space for other creatures, you know, both in the food chain and in the land and water area. Um, so I think it is a huge issue, Tyler, going into 2023. 20, uh, what 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 I'm noticing in myself, and this is in my own <clears throat> my own uh, uh, framing up of my relationship with my environment, you know, the, the environment I'm in, which happens to be the same environment that you're in, Peter, because we're both sailing through the cosmos on planet Earth. But uh, <laughs> right. what I'm realizing is that we are a part of this thing. Um, we are very much a part of this thing, and I, I kind of grew up feeling. Uh, uh, apart in the opposite way, that separated from it. Uh, that, uh, you know, I lived indoors. Uh, I had power and the comfort of, of heaters and air conditioning and automobiles and airplanes. And, you know, you'd look down on the airplane and look at the shoreline and it looked rigid and angular and man-made. And that was the universe that, that I grew up in, uh, certainly the, the earth that I grew up in. And increasingly, I'm realizing that I am living on a rock in space that is extremely natural. Uh, it's not man-made, actually. No, it not. is totally natural. And uh, increasingly, I am uh, finding myself wanting to be a, a symbiotic piece of uh, the environment and not be a part of it and not just live for comfort. You know, I got to say, my my grandparents who lived through the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression probably couldn't believe this sentiment. It would probably be impossible for them. You know, these these are the folks that dammed the rivers and celebrated it. Um, and it was a great accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the, the domination of the natural environment was uh, in the fact that we thought we could engineer our way into a world we wanted. It was a bit arrogant, I think, in retrospect, and I think it's becoming more and more clear that we we can't dominate natural systems uh, and benefit from that for very long. Totally. And I have a few other uh, honorable mentions here heading into 2023. We're running out of time, Peter, so we're not going to go long on these, but I want to talk you know, quickly about uh, PFAS and microplastics. Uh, we are learning more and more about the... Uh, the impacts that these things are having in our lives and in ecosystems, how pervasive they are. They're finding microplastics at the bottom of the ocean, basically anywhere uh, that, that they look, they're finding them. I know that uh, we have done several shows on the subject throughout uh, 2022, and I anticipate we'll be doing more. This is a major storyline. Uh, another major thing, Peter, that I think we can look forward to, this is uh, happier news, I guess, is discoveries. Uh, marine exploration is going, I think, going to be kicking into a new gear. Uh, we had the, the honor of attending the National Ocean Exploration Forum in Austin, Texas this year, Peter. And at the forum, we learned a great deal about how the oceans are being explored now and how they are going to be explored into the future. And what this means is smaller, autonomous, uh, sensor-loaded uh, little vehicles that are going to be gathering data connected to the internet. This is going to revolutionize our understanding of the ocean and coastal space. Large, big data, uh, huge, huge uh, advancements coming in, the, in all these areas. Already started. Going to be, it, it is going to be huge. We're going to have so much more information. And I think the challenge is going to be how do we process it and incorporate it into decision making in a coherent way. Um, uh, I, I have no, I have no doubt that the level of instrumentation and data and understanding of the natural world is is going to be beneficial 
um, how we will turn that information into action, uh, I am less certain of. Well, I'll give you a quick example of what I'm anticipating. Here in Ventura County, we have a an old derelict dam, uh, the Matillaha Dam, uh, that needs to come down. And there is a full plan in place to bring this thing down by 2030. Uh, we are working toward it. There's a lot of, you know, taking a dam down is a comp- is complicated business. Uh, you got to really think about the whole downstream impacts of doing that. And so that's what we're working on now. But by 2030, uh, we will be ready to actually blow this old dam up. And what's critical about this is actually timing the removal of the dam with an atmospheric river type system, not unlike the one that California is currently experiencing. And this will require forecasting as far in advance as it in advance as possible so that, you know, the explode, the charges can be set and people can be in place and the preparations can be made to do this big, big, big event. And uh, this gets down into forecasting technology and forecasting technology is changing dramatically year by year right now. And it has so much to do with AI and data data input. We are collecting more and more and more atmospheric data from all over the world. And that is what is allowing us to have better forecasts, be, be they for hurricanes coming into the southeast or for atmospheric rivers coming into the west coast. Uh, and so uh, just a, it's an example of how modern planetary science, I guess we can call this, is is reliant on modeling and data. Uh, the good news is we can collect this data like never before, p- put it in the cloud and crunch it, crunch all of it using modern computing. It's very exciting and it's going to change the way we understand the world. I, and, you know, uh, and, and who knew, you know, you start thinking about a dam removal project that, that's going to involve some fairly sophisticated uh, forecasting and it has to do with the flushing of the sediments behind the dam uh, I'm this is you know you and I had the had the chance to uh, go to the Matillaha dam uh, with one of the activists who was working on the removal some years ago uh, I still have got the photos it was an amazing trip up there uh, it does work uh, 10 years ago in Washington state they took out the Elwa River dam uh, it's been a full 10 years now, and uh, the circumstances of that removal, uh, I think across the board, glowing reviews, uh, salmon have returned, there's a delta forming, this is in the Juan de Fuca Strait, um, sort of on the on the northern coast of the Olympic Peninsula, and you know, it, took, it takes a while uh, for it to, to even out and to, and to come back to health. Um, and, and a lot of flow is necessary to move the backlog of sediments and rocks and things that have gathered behind the dam. It takes a while for that stuff to, to get downstream. So, um, yeah, that's an exciting dam project. And, uh, and uh, you're right, uh, you know, big data and the technology of ocean and coast, which is the subject matter of, uh, of the Wavemakers podcast on ASPN. Uh, hosted by Tamara Khan. So we got a great show on Ocean Tech for all the listeners out there. We do. Be sure to check it out. Well, Peter, I'm excited for 2023. I know it's going to be a great year. It's going to be a year of development and change. We've got some exciting plans for ASPN. We've got some new shows that I'm hoping uh, to get launched here real soon for our ASPN listeners. And I just want to say before we sign off, uh, a thank you to all of you listeners out there for uh, tuning in to the American Shoreline Podcast and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, We do this really for you, and uh, we want to share these conversations with you, and y'all listen to them. So thank you so much for tuning in. I couldn't agree with you more, Tyler. I appreciate all the listeners out there. It was a bang-up year on ASPN. Uh, real growth in the network and the listenership out there all around the world. It's just kind of amazing how this has all played out. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Always is, Tyler. Looking forward to 2023 with you. And uh, to all the folks out there uh, and all of our hosts, especially uh, Tyler and I, bottom of our heart, thanks for all the work, the collaboration, um, 
and uh, joining us on this great adventure on ASPN. Yeah.